There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week on Truth and Movies, the Fab Four are no more in Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle's Beatles Beatles musical Yesterday. I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Marianne Jean-Baptiste says yes to a supernatural dress in Peter Strickland's In Fabric. Be bold. Your date will compliment you. And in Film Club, it's Beatlemania all over again in Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night. Oh, by all means, I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's Michael Leader here for Truth and Movies, hoping to review this week's new releases with a little help from my friends, David Jenkins of Little White Lies. Hey, hey. And Sophie Monks Kaufman, Wes Anderson close-up paperback writer. Oh, that was Hi-oh. very good and unexpected. <laughs> Welcome back, Sophie. Thank you. So, David, we have a new issue of Little White Lies on the stands as we speak. We do, we do, finally. <laughs> yeah, it's our 80th edition. It's a mag we, we toiled over quite a bit. On the cover is um, a film called The Souvenir by a great director called Joanna Hogg. Mm-hmm. Sophie Monks Kaufman actually spoke to Joanna Hogg and uh, the star of the film, Honor Swinton Byrne. It's a wonderful interview, you must read it. And yes, a little extra to this issue mm-hmm. is that we've also did this really huge feature on a kind of alternative canon of 100 British films and the feature is actually animated so the illustrations in the issue all move Mm -hmm. with the help of a special decoder that you get kind of attached to the front cover of the mag and it's a bit of fun and uh, (laughs) you know if you're an avid podcast listener but never crossed over to the print edition this could be a fun time to do so softly urging shall we say <laughs> a strong recommendation yes, a, stro- a strong but uh, gentle recommendation and that is in stores now or do you yep. still need to wait a couple of days or yeah it's in stores right now perfect go out and have a look at it so we should crack on with this week's new releases starting first of all with yesterday Imagine there's no Beatles. It's easy if you try. Well, even easier if you're Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle, writer and director of Yesterday. Himesh Patel stars as Jack Malik, a failing wannabe songwriter who wakes up from a nasty collision with a bus to find he's the only person in the world that remembers the music of the Beatles. Fame, fortune and some tough life decisions await. What happened? <gasps> Electricity flicked off all over the world. Cheese! <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday... Ellie bought you a present. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? 
on Paul George and Ringo, the Beatles. No. Stop it. Yesterday. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. Well, it's not Coldplay. It's not Fix You. Do you genuinely not know who the Beatles are? Genuinely. And I'm in a really, really, really complicated situation. So, David, this is the meeting of two British cinema titans, in a way, Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis. Where do we stand on them at the moment? Are they on good form? Are we expecting some greatness from them? They're in a weird place. I mean, Richard Curtis is is not someone who I would sort of say I was a fan of in general. In fact, I think Love Actually is maybe the worst piece of art. Actually, I wouldn't even (laughs) call it art ever created in, in this kind of hellscape. I think he's not a good director, so I think that having Danny Boyle involved in this project is probably a good idea. I mean, he certainly kind of brings some pep to the words. This feels a, a little bit more than a kind of very, very kind of standard, like aesthetically speaking, like the, than a standard rom-com. There's, there are some, like, a few interesting aesthetic choices. Do you in mean the... ugly aesthetic choices? <laughs> well, it was not ugly and not beautiful, so... Um, but at the same time, it, it, it didn't feel like just shot reverse shot reverse you know like mm-hmm. talking heads like having conversations with each other there was a little bit more to it than that Danny Boyle walked away from a Bond film to do this and it's it seems like a a, a strange life choice career choice mm-hmm. um, tonally the film is kind of this mesh of I don't know I'm, I'm kind of baffled by this film to be honest to, um, it's about this idea of you know the Beatles music disappearing from existence except in the in the mind of this one guy and he takes it on as his kind of mission in life as this kind of failing singer-songwriter to bring this great art back to the people. In the moment, I was kind of having a jolly time with it and it was, you know, the comedy was quite fun and there was enough there of this idea of like, it's essentially a superhero movie. Mm -hmm. A guy is given this special power and he is then, he becomes extremely lonely being the only person who knows about this thing that he can do and is worried about what if other people find out, what if he's rumbled, what, you know. I guess it doesn't focus too much on that because it, at the same time it has a a kind of love story happening in the background where he, in his sort of childhood, it's not even a childhood sweetheart, mm-hmm. it's a, a BFF. Is BFF still a term? Yes. Okay. She has been pining for him ever since they were, were very young. She's been his his manager. She is his kind of biggest fan of his kind of quite bad sort of pub rock. He has this song called The Summer Song, which is really terrible. And yeah, it, it kind of fuses those stories together. And, and I think the film is basically a balancing act of, 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 you know, will he get the girl and what will he do with his special power? There's a lot to talk about, I guess. It's <laughs> such a, it is a baffling film. It has such a high concept premise and then it goes in several potential directions, but ne- not necessarily one that, that pays off any, at all very well. Sophie, were you baffled by this? What was your overarching feeling yeah, here? I, I have many feelings, but I'll take it back in time. The most interesting thing about this movie is its conceit, mm-hmm. but it's not remotely interested in exploring the conceit. It's like, here's this conceit that, by the way... It's not even the first one to explore. Goodnight, sweetheart, apparently. Mm. Uh, Let me read you a small extract. I did some digging, like one does on one's enemies, which yesterday is now my enemy. In the BBC sitcom, which ran for six series and is to become a stage musical early next year, a time travel portal took the hero back to wartime London before the Beatles existed, leaving him free to play their hits as his own on a pub piano. 
And in this Guardian article, it ends by saying that a spokesperson for Boyle did not respond to a request for comment. So this conceit, which is, as I said, the most interesting thing about it, is not truly original. Anyway, the thing that baffled me about it is because it's got this idea of, yeah, like, what's going to be the payoff of this conceit? You're kind of hanging in there, waiting, 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 waiting. And I was like, okay, you say they're rushing through all this, like, generic romantic stuff that has nothing to do with the conceit. But surely there'll be a payoff. But surely there'll be... Oh, okay. There's not going to be a payoff. So... I felt a kind of like embarrassed sympathy for all the actors having to go through these thankless one-note characterizations. It should be such a juicy role for Himesh Patel, you know, thrust into the situation where he's exploring these psychological demons of like guilt and he's deceiving everyone. But no, there is no nuance, there's no depth. The role played by Lily James as the BFF is just like generic love interest role. All the bit part characters are generic bit parts with like one aspect to them. The only question worth asking about this dismal middle brow movie is how did Kate McKinnon manage to pull off her role? Because that is a one bright spot in mm. all this. I don't even know how Richard Curtis had the motivation to continue finishing the screenplay because there's, there's no life force in it. There's no energy in it. There's no originality in it. You know, he's done the rom-com thing before like why take this concept and then tack on the most generic romantic ideas have already been done a million times in the movies so yeah the only thing i'm willing to do or interested in discussing is kate mckinnon who does something with her role as a like money obsessed producer type Mm -hmm. but then that's the almost the star is born thread of the film where he comes along with a bunch of pretty normal songs, you know, as in basic arrangements of songs, and then is catapulted to potential fame and stardom and whisked off to Hollywood and goes into boardrooms and Kate McKinnon is the the, the, the devil giving him this bargain to make him very famous and she'll take most of the money and buy another beach house in Malibu, right? Yeah, and she's doing sort of yoga and Pilates and telling him straight up she's not interested in anything to do with his life. She just sees him as a product. and She does some wonderful bits of, like... She'll just be sat there on a sofa with him and she'll just randomly cock her head back mid-conversation and it's so funny and it's nothing to, you know, it's just these little kind of nuances that, you know, I think she did similar things in the Ghostbusters film, which I found really funny, but just like she's she's in her, she's really in the character. Mm. When you talk about the conceit, it reminds me of Richard Curtis's previous movie About Time, which was a sci-fi movie with a time travel concept within a family relationship drama. And again, it was one where, what if you had the power to travel through time? And But then he doesn't rigorously explore that, mm-hmm. think of the consequences, and instead just staples that onto a normal Richard Curtis script of boy meets girl and runs to a train station or airport to meet her at some point. This is the issue here, is that it kind of lays out this conceit and thinks, let's build a rom-com now. Let's have this twist at the beginning and then just let's build the Richard Com, Richard Cur- Richard the, com. the rich rich com the Richard <laughs> Curtis rom com out of that. This is a film that doesn't ask any questions. It doesn't sort of ask you know how does I saw her standing there come across in 2018. Mm-hmm. You know would these songs really connect with people now? You know were they about innovation in their time? Mm. There's so many intriguing kind of what ifs when you're thinking about this film of like well what if it was a film about how a guy remembered the Beatles, but now people didn't connect with the Beatles. I mean, that just seems like such a, a more fa- like that. You know what we considered to be the greatest art, you know, mm-hmm. musical art made in modern times, to actually be of its time and not have that connection to a contemporary audience. Like, I mean, it doesn't ask any of these questions. It, that so much of the film is Richard Curtis making these very broad statements about well, obviously the Beatles are the greatest artists, musical artists of, of modern era. Obviously. 
you know, marriage and kids is the the pinnacle of civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's um, That's it. it's full of assumptions and totally lacking in curiosity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I'm also trying to grapple with the you know the fact that I did you know in the moment I was thinking you know this has maybe got something and I mean I really hate biopics. I really hate kind of you know your kind of Bohemian Rhapsodies where it's essentially a life story and there's musical songs along the way and it's essentially a way of repackaging mm-hmm. the greatest hits CD or you know it's a big marketing thing to get people buying the music again and I like the idea of you know the Beatles are probably the only band for which this would really work because their songs are so ingrained in the consciousness I believe that he would remember the lyrics and I believe that he would be able to like rehash them and play them Mm -hmm. because you know they are such important songs for songwriters Beatles songs are the ones you like know all the lyrics for Mm -hmm. you know you'd sing them at school and stuff like that the the film does have a little bit of fun with that where the most of the film he's trying to remember those lyrics to well known Rigby the the specific rhyme scheme and so on he he goes to Liverpool at one point to try and figure out all those locations in Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields forever and so on but I think beyond that though once you just think of as you say it's like a superhero movie they're just what if you had great songs yes. is really what the conceit is. And for me, I do love the Beatles, uh, but with a, with a reality check that really any band with that right of cultural moment could have been just as big. There's something here about a conceit where once you take out the major cultural force of British culture internationally in 1964 onwards the world will change. There's a huge speculative fiction story to show there. He goes to Liverpool at one point. Liverpool would probably still be in post-World War II bombed-out black zone because there's no tourist industry there. Or at least the cultural invention that came after the Beatles and the, the, the Mersey Sound and so on. Likewise with London. Swinging London would not have happened. All it has is a first excruciatingly naff first draft jokes about, oh yeah, there's no oasis in this world. <laughs> <laughs> Music has... It exists. It shouldn't be the same. Yeah, as Sophie said, there is no, there's no curiosity beyond mm-hmm. this very like. It's purely formal. It's purely mm-hmm. like a mechanism rather than something that is actually. How can I explore this idea and and you know dig into what it what the actual meanings are and. It just seems like it might have been so so much more exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I I tweeted that I cried tears of rage at the end, and I did, because the only thing it's interested in is propagating the already dominant cultural myth that love is all you need. So it's not even curious about the dynamics of this central pair. They've known each other for over a decade. They grew up together. And it's not remotely interested in the transition the psychological nuances of what might happen when you, you try and transform that relationship. It's just like you need to say the magic word and hey presto. And that infuriates me. In fact, I'm going to segue into this rant into mm-hmm. a small plug because what does interest me is the, the reality of how the people relate in romantic and sexual situations. And um, my dear friend Christina Newland, who's also a contributor to Little White Lies, is putting together an anthology about female desire in cinema to which I've contributed an essay about empathising with the cannibal quarry in trouble every day. And this is much needed because it's the antidote to so much of this inane, lazy ideology about how romantic relationships work. And OK, like maybe I'm like using this as a bit of a whipping stick and it's by all means not the only film to propagate this. But given that it's the single belief that this film holds, 
as we've covered, it's not remotely interested in its sci-fi premise. It's not really interested in its like cultural what-ifness. It's only interested in this relationship. But it's not really even interested in relationships and how they work. It's just like, you say this magic word. This film is only interested in love as a magical property. And it's bankrupt. It's fully bankrupt on every level. I think it's interesting before that you mentioned Star is Born. I think that the, the Judy Garland, James Mason star is born is like one of the greatest ever films because it like it really kind of tangles with the idea of love versus ambition and, you know, how those kind of intertwine in, in a really, really complex way. So, David, <laughs> what scores would you give yesterday in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect? I'm probably leaning towards a three for anticipation because... I think Danny Boyle, I'm not his greatest fan. This film seemed like a bit different for him, more of his like, you remember that film he did Millions? Like mm-hmm. that, that kid's film about the kids spending a million pounds. This was like, oh, he's, he's doing another Millions. It's, it's a kind of, you know, a, a slightly left field family film. And it was like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll see how this goes. In the moment, there were elements of it that I was enjoying. I, you know, Kate McKinnon was, was fun. And I think the performances are kind of, you know, lively enough to sort of make the actual moment of interest. But yeah, in, in retrospect, it's, it's more of a sort of two bordering on a one because it's, it's anger making when a film makes it so hard to convince yourself of why you were enjoying it in the moment that you did enjoy it. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm finding it really hard to sort of justify my own impulses which is upsetting Mm -hmm. Sophie so Anticipation 2 I've not been a fan of Richard Curtis since Notting Hill which I loved what happened to 20 year ago Richard Curtis Um, Hugh Grant mm, oh no Hugh Grant was in um, Love Actually wasn't he yeah but maybe you need Hugh Grant as a real pillar yeah yeah and I've not really been a fan of Danny Boyle since the Olympics (laughs) Uh, so yeah Anticipation 2 Enjoyment to, like I said, I didn't realise how much I vitriolically hated it until the end. I was sustained by this premise, looking forward to something other than what it turned out to be. And Himesh Patel, this film done the dirty on him, it done the dirty on Lily James. Like the performers bring their all. It's not their fault that the script hates humans. I agree with that. I hope that everyone involved goes on and does other things. Ed Sheeran wasn't the least embarrassing yes. part of the I can't believe we, like, it, oh, yeah. this is crazy that we've had this whole conversation <laughs> and Ed Sheeran hasn't even come into it. We should mix. just say it's not a cameo, it's a supporting role, yes. isn't it? Yeah. I th- actually thought there's a moment where they have a, a song off, like a kind of let's write a song in 10 minutes and see who's better. And Ed Sheeran's reaction after Jack sings Long and Winding Road, which he supposedly made up, is really quite... Affecting, I thought. Yeah. You know, Hangs he, up his hat. Yeah, in a, but in a, in quite a sort of what have I done with my life kind of way, mm-hmm. a realization of his own mediocrity. So we, so something yeah. came out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, did you say you're in retrospect? Things are five, wasn't it? Oh, I think you can guess my retrospect. And just to tack on to that, all these four star reviews and major outlets are messing with my mind. <laughs> In retrospect, one also, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yes, exactly. For me, it's a, yeah, a, a, probably a three-two-one. I was lured in by the premise and very disappointed. And I don't think Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis have done worse work today. And I hope they can come back because I quite like them on their own game. 
Sophie, for your um, livelihood, we should leave the Beatles behind for now, but we will get back to them later mm-hmm. in Film Club for a hard day's night. But up next, we're talking about In Fabric. Do you know what it reminded me of? It's Alan Partridge, What's Your Favourite Best Album, of Best of the Beatles. It's that film. <laughs> <laughs> From the very unique cinematic mind of Peter Strickland, director of Duke of Burgundy and Bavarian Sound Studio, among others, comes In Fabric. During the winter sales, a middle-aged woman picks up a beautiful beguiling blood-red dress from a mysterious department store. It soon turns out that the dress is cursed and there are dangerous consequences in store for its wearers and their nearest and dearest. A purchase on a horizon. I'm just looking, thank you. The hesitation in your voice soon to be an echo in the recesses of the spheres of retail. The dress is your image onto what you project through an illusion. I'm just going on a date. I don't normally wear this kind of thing. Be bold. Your date will compliment you. I would like you to announce the numbers to your telephone. 01632 Seven. And seven, eight, six, and six, and stop. So, if we, before we get into the film itself, we should just salute Fatima Mohammed, who yes. appears in all of Peter Strickland's films. You may remember from Duke of Burgundy as the creator of the human toilet device. She is fantastic in this, isn't she? Sure, as some sort of mystical European sophisticate who's potentially deranged by the forces of witchcraft, yes. <laughs> Are you generally on board with Peter Strickland's unique cinematic world? Absolutely. And we couldn't be reviewing two more different films. You know, we've got the kind of middle-brow auto-tune yesterday and this, which is so very much in the obscure deep end of its creator's fascinations. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of middle-brow. What's the opposite of middle-brow? Monobrow? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a curio of a film, for sure. And it feels very connected to the Duke of Burgundy in that there's many forces at play, but one aspect is this fetishistic approach to fabrics. And Mm. Duke of Burgundy, when I think of that, I think of the sound of boots unzipping and leather. And this, as the title would indicate, is in thrall to a dress, this red dress. But it's also all the action is set around this department store called Dentley and Soper, mm-hmm. which actually apparently is based on a real department store in Reading that had all these anachronistic elements. For example, if you pay for your item in Dentley and Soper, your note will go into a small canister that will get shot through a tube and then your change will come shooting back through the tube. The canister will be undone and you will receive the change. This was a, a real element. Can I just say, I, I am old enough to have worked in a supermarket that had those, not individual change, but when your till filled up with money, you'd wad it into one of these things and shoot it up the pipe. Mm. I've done that. That has been my life. How did it feel? It felt good. In fact, in a kind of reverse mechanisation thing, they got rid of it and had a person come round and uh, and pick them up as a little a little job. So there you go. But back to in fabric, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to in fabric. So it's a film of two halves, even though they're slightly uneven halves. So the principal character that you meet is Marion Jean Baptist, and she's this quite forlorn character because she lives with her adult son who apparently is 
like studying for his exams, but looks about 30. <laughs> and uh, he's an artist and he's taken this lover who is sort of facing off to Marianne Jean Baptist's character all the time. And she gets to hear them having sex and stuff. And she's very much the third wheel in her own home. And she writes this Lonely Hearts column and stuff. And there's two tonal levels of the dialogue. The sort of dialogue that she gets and that most of the characters get is almost quite everyday not banal exactly but very colloquial and then she'll go to this department store where Fatima Mohammed will weave these flowery passages at her and it's this mystic language that sort of infuses itself in the dress that she buys that she then takes home that then itself wreaks this havoc on her life and her force field in in certain ways that I don't want to spoil so she's in the first part and then the second part is the dress going to this man, washing machine repairman named Reg, who is soon to be married to a character played by Hayley Squires. So the structure of it is quite unwieldy. And initially, I first watched it in Toronto and I was a little unsatisfied with it. But this time around, I bought into the granular details of it more than these structural divides and found myself actually really moved by the human qualities this dress with supernatural properties brings out and I was reading that Peter Strickland actually had six different stories that Mm -hmm. he caught for budgetary reasons and I was thinking actually this film might work so well as six episodes Twilight Zone episodes each with a different person taking on the dress dress actually yeah dress actually (laughs) but yeah I don't know I don't have any big conclusive remarks about it it's just intriguing and Mm -hmm. And mesmerising and tattoo. Jenkins, what yeah, are you... Yeah, David, do you, what do you take? Make well, this? going back to Peter Strickland, he's someone who I've, I've always thought is this amazing force for good. You know, he's completely out on his own. Mm-hmm. You, know, he, you know, he's doing things. He's his own guy. Yeah. And he's got his own very eclectic set of kind of inspirations and, and tastes that he kind of fuses into these films. I've always found that with films like Duke of Burgundy and Barbarian Sound Studio... He has kind of made these really amazing, like, 70-minute films where they build and build and build. And then he kind of segues into this, like, almost ambient head trip. The films just sort of explode at the end, Mm -hmm. and they kind of go off in various directions. It's almost like there is no ending to them. And I've always found those endings tremendously unsatisfying. The build-up has been so amazing that it kind of just, you know, for some... Obviously, it's going to be this transcendent thing, but for me, it just they just never quite work. Hearing about this film as being in two parts, I was kind of thinking, oh my God, he's doubled down on everything that I, I don't like about him. He's, he's extending that bit that I don't like. And I was imagining the second part to be the kind of weirdy, spinny camera, blurred vision, ambient drone thing that he does mm-hmm. so often for, for this extended period of time, but it isn't that at all. And in fact, this probably is... I think it's maybe his most satisfying film, maybe my favourite of his. It is very funny, captures quite a lot of weird, disparate emotions that you don't really necessarily think can come together in this way. I mean, I think the the episode at the beginning with um, with Sheila, watching her is actually very moving because she she's very like as you say forlorn, sad eyed character, and then her kind of interfacing with the world of of Dentley and Soper, Mm -hmm. this kind of wannabe upscale department store that has got lots of weird happenings and there's weird things happening with the what are they called mannequins. the mannequins uh-huh. um, that's possibly the most memorable scene yeah. and um 
you have this sort of second episode in the film and uh, you know a similar sort of um, rotation of things happens again mm-hmm. but with different characters and um, I don't know I just I kind of felt that this was a film that actually is quite political it's, it's got quite a sort of strident take on capitalism on not just like capitalism is evil but it's really exploring this idea of like the sort of capitalism as a, as a spell that kind of takes over your mind and that, that, that has, has a kind of killer aspect to it that can kind of take you down that this kind of world we live in of jobs and consumerism and going to sort of shops and retail is just is there's something fraudulent about it something quite inherently evil and unlike all his other films I was really loved the sort of final shot mm. of the film mm. which kind of ties it together in in quite an obscure way but in a very sort of bracing and quite and, and like dark finale almost a kind of shining-esque quality I mean it, it yeah I was really on board for this one just to round this up, what I find so fascinating about Peter Strickland, as you say, he's drawing from all these inspirations and he's very much making his own unique film. This has been pitched in some ways as a horror film, as the horror film of this cursed dress. But as, we, as we've been talking about it, we've not really been talking about it on, the, on, a, on a scale of being creeps or scares or so on. How would you describe it to someone who's mildly curious about this film but isn't sure what pigeonholes puts it in if it can be pigeonholed? Strangely, it reminded me of Laszlo Nemez's Sunset. It has this Kafkaesque vibe whereby the sort of structure of life is is very... I want to say meat and potatoes, that's the wrong phrase, but Sheila goes to work in a bank. Reg works for a washing machine repairman. We should say there's great parts for Julian Barrett and Steve Oram as the two head honchos. Stash and Clive. (laughs) Yeah, the head honchos at Wangels, which is where Sheila works, and she gets taken to task for her handshake and given a sort of instructional cartoon and how she can have a better handshake. Their parts are, are, are beautiful. But it's like reality, but with some kind of bolted on horoscope of existential malaise that this dress brings out so I would say it's it's yes some kind of like social magical realism Hmm. that's not a genre I think what makes it so fascinating is like Jenkins was saying these disparate emotions that it summons almost polar opposites so every day so bizarre and this is his first film to be set in Britain. He's made films set you know, all over the place, and in Europe in particular. So this is the first time where he's working with a cast who are, I mean, it's, it's a heightened and arch version, but it's talking in everyday vernacular and having setups and situations that aren't so dissimilar from sitcoms like The Office, for example, where there's uh, some sort of uh, embarrassing exchange with a boss, as you just said, being taken to task for your handshake. <laughs> yes. And Stash and Clive are really scene stealers, really, aren't they? They're very funny. <laughs> There's a whole thing about that. I really love the kind of Reggie's washing machine tech talk that he does <laughs> when he sort of starts talking about the actual issues that, that people are having with their washing machine. People go into this kind of daze, which is very funny. Which is almost sort of fetishistic in a way. Like, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, it's almost like, like, it's ASMR almost like some, yeah, or I mean, talking about the horror stuff as well, I think he does fill his, his films with these references and, like, the mannequins is, is all very, like, Mario Bava and there's a dog attack sequence mm. that, that is very, like, it's, like, straight out of Suspiria. And, I mean, Suspiria is probably another big mm-hmm. reference point for him. But he doesn't sort of drag them out and 
you know they're not edited in the way that horror films are edited and you know it's not this kind of slow release they're all all these sort of bits they've got a slight kind of cartoonish quality to them mm. disturbing more than sort of scary I'd say it feels like he's playing them for the image rather than for the horror totally yeah huh. so Sophie what scores would you give in Fabric? Anticipation for he's his own person and I respect that enjoyment a baffled four <laughs> in retrospect a respectful four okay. wow those those pauses were very <laughs> dramatic <laughs> David I would go the same mm-hmm. um, I, I think this could even go up on a rewatch because I, I really liked it going back to what we were saying originally about this new issue of Little White Lies I mean we're, I think this issue is focusing on the idea of like who are the Peter Stricklands in British history, who are the iconoclasts who are mm-hmm. kind of doing their own thing and rejecting this kind of commercialised version of like cinema as, as a money-making device. And I think as much as I hope In Fabric makes loads of money, <laughs> um, you know, it's great to see someone who's just like, you know, he's, he's got a very long leash. Well, he says another reason to hope it makes money is he says that if it's a success, he might do the other stories that he thought of for the dress so there we go there's your encouragement there for for me it's a 433 I agree with your first viewing Sophie it wasn't so satisfying for me but Duke of Burgundy really improved on multiple watches for me and I think maybe this will be one I will regret it if I don't shout out Manchester boy music legend Barry Adamson here making his first significant acting debut he was in magazine that came in the bad seats scored David Lynch movies and so on he is wonderful as one of Sheila's dates I'd like to go on a date with him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's in Fabric. We're going to return to the Fab Four next with A Hard Day's Night. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss yeah 
Yes, now it's back to 1964 and the height of Beatlemania for A Hard Day's Night. Something of a low-budget cash-in on the Beatles' mega-popularity at the time, this portrait of an anarchic day and a half in the life of John, Paul, George and Ringo was a huge critical and commercial hit. As the lads prepare for a concert and practice a few new tunes, they get into all sorts of scrapes, many involving Paul's ne'er-do-well granddad, played by Steptoe and Sons, Wilfred Bramble. Here's a clip featuring George being roped into a cynical attempt to sway the minds of the younger generation. We'd like you to give us your opinion on some clothes for teenagers. Oh, by all means, I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. Well, not your real opinion, naturally. It'll be written out and you'll learn it. Can you read? Of course I can. I mean lines, Ducky. Can you handle lines? Well, I'll have a bash. Good. Give him whatever it is they drink. A cocorama? A guitar? Well, at least he's polite. Show him the shirts, Adrian. Now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that cab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seen dead in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. It's rather touching, really. Here's this kid trying to give me his utterly valueless opinion when I know for a fact that within a month he'll be suffering from a violent inferiority complex and loss of status because he isn't wearing one of these nasty things. Of course, they're grotty, you wretched nit. That's why they were designed, but that's what you'll want. I won't. You know, I'd always thought that grotty was some sort of Middle English old word, but it actually was a 1960s contraction of grotesque. That's the actual etymology of the word. A hard day's night teaching us linguistics there. Oh. I've never thought about the word grotty before <laughs> no. this moment. You don't use it? Uh, and not really, no. David, what's your relationship with A Hard Day's Night? I hadn't seen this film until very recently. I'd seen it a couple of times and I like it. I think it's one of those films that you almost have to see to be able to understand references in other media, like Mm -hmm. The Simpsons and other things inevitably. But it's kind of crazy how amazingly funny the Beatles are. And I actually, whenever I watch the film, I I kind of always wish the focus was a bit more on them. I mean, just from that clip, George Harrison is just so... his, His sort of deadpan is hilarious. And the kind of actor guy that he's opposite kind of... It doesn't kill it a bit, but you're listening to that going, why isn't George talking more, you know? You know, even though it's a kind of fairly curt Mm 90-minuter, I always wish that there was a bit more of of the Beatles just bantering around and and less kind of like trying to fill out their monkey shines with with various (laughs) sort of... uh, you know, plot points and think you know other other little sort of divergence happening in the background. Yeah, I think the reputation for the film is that you know some of the Beatles are, were were less interested in acting than others. You can really tell that John Lennon's mugging for the camera whenever there's one near him, and he's going through all his goon show voices and so on. But I don't think George Harrison had any interest in being in front of the camera. Maybe that contributes to his deadpan. And you can see that Ringo is a bit more confident. You can see that maybe he'll have a career later on. Paul McCartney's actually pretty funny as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sophie, what did you think? Yeah, I watched it for film club i was surprised by how off the wall its energy was Mm. i was expecting something more produced you can see it's low budget i read that the writer alan alan owen alan owen he spent a couple of days with the beatles to get his ear down for how they interacted and to get a sense of the sort of situations they're in and I'm not the first to say it, and 
every situation they're in in a hard day's night, they're kind of trapped, whether it's in a train carriage or in a room or is running away from screaming children, as they get called, <laughs> children. So, I, yeah, I think it has this this surprising idiosyncratic zip to it. And I didn't realise I was such a Ringo fan no, really. until I watched it. He's just got this great kind of sanguine vibe <laughs> there's a part where he goes off on his own and has an interaction with a child and uh, I was incredibly there for this cross-generational <laughs> interaction you heard it here first the Beatles are charming performers it's so fascinating looking back at this now Richard Lester of course goes on and makes the Three Musketeers movies two Superman movies and so on but right here he's still only a couple of films into his career and he's so formally inventive where you you have these handheld cameras that are throwing around trying to recreate the energy of what it's like being at the heart of Beatlemania and the final performance sequence which is almost a 15-20 minute set which is almost entirely made up of these extreme close-up whip pan shots mm-hmm. of screaming young girls really does get that across and that's what the film achieves is capturing that spirit and character of the Beatles the press conference sequence where they're being mobbed by journalists and being asked terrible Are you a questions. A rocker? I'm a mocker. Exactly. Which apparently was something <laughs> yeah. that was said and then quickly noted yeah. down and reset in the film. It does manage to succeed there. Oh, totally. I mean, it, it's one of those films that is like absolutely the product of it's the fact that the Beatles were on a very tight schedule, had very little time to actually make the film. There wasn't actually much budget to make the film. Mm. And um, it's kind of like a director making the absolute best of the situation mm-hmm. and um, the sequence where they sing Can't Buy Me Love in the in the park and they're sort of diving around and there's, there's this kind of helicopter shot it, it really suddenly feels like very extravagant you're like thinking wow they've got a helicopter this must have been like you know most of the budget right yeah. there and it's this really kind of visually dazzling scene you know edited in this really innovative snappy way definitely you know feels like it's kind of you know, Richard Lester is is a fan of um, you know French New Wave, and and you know it has that kind of breathless vibe to it mm. in both senses of the word. Yeah. Yeah. I find the Beatles' film legacy so fascinating because, of course, this film is one that always appears on these best British films of all time lists, Time Out, BFI, and so on. But they're Little White Lies. Is this is it in this in the list? Oh, fantastic! But. The Beatles film legacy, this and Help and Onwards, they're not films that are very regularly shown. They're taken out of circulation. Some of them are very literally so suppressed, like the the Let It Be movie that may now be refashioned by Peter Jackson working his magic. So whereas the albums are all and the songs are always omnipresent and can grow up, I don't feel that these films have at least enjoyed in the public eye as much. There's a generation gap. There are people of a certain age who remember these films being on telly every Christmas. But as a Beatles fan, for me, it's something that's astonishing. I've not seen them. You don't think they're very good in general? No, no. I think, like, Help is less interesting than this, and then Magical Mystery Tour is, like, I'd, I'd love the opportunity to see Magical Mystery Tour. I've never, been, you know, never really got, got the opportunity. It was on telly at Christmas, like, a few years ago. Oh, it was, it's, the best bit is a bit where they have the Bonzo Dog Doodah mm-hmm. band on, singing Death Cab for Cutie. It's mm-hmm. like, the rest of the film is abysmal. It's like it, it, But they tried to recreate Hard Day's Night, where it's like, no money, put a load of people on a variety coach, drive around and do funny improvised jokes, and it just totally falls flat it's really interesting as a kind of counterpoint to this film well maybe a future film club next time there's a Beatles related movie one, one thing to also mention is that Richard Lester before Superman and et al he went on to make some incredible films mm-hmm. like some like when I watched this a few years ago I kind of delved into his back catalogue and saw two films by him that I'm just like overwhelmingly amazing mm-hmm. I think 
One's called Pachulia yes. with Julie Christie. And one's called Robin and Marion oh, that is with, with Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn. Both of them are absolutely, like, extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And you like, should say that it's them in their late middle age. So it's an old yes. Robin and Marion. Yeah. Yes. But really, it's the, it's the most sort of melancholic, bittersweet film ever made. I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredible. And, and you saw Petulia well, recently, yes, didn't you? you lent it to me as part of my self-curated Impossible Love Fest. And it was certainly about impossible love plenty of film recommendations there should we say what our favorite beatles album is that was suggested here by adam in the script yeah we can do that sophie do you have a favorite beatles album um well i feel like the white album cheats by virtue of being so long so i'm gonna go for revolver ah david i'm gonna say it's a dead heat between abbey road and magical mystery tour uh-huh. Hate the film, love the album. Okay. <laughs> I am going to cheat and say the White Album, but maybe I can caveat it because... Disc the, one. The, <laughs> well, almost. The remaster last year came with the extra disc of the Isha demos where they went and recorded almost the entire album at George Harrison's house. And it's the Beatles with mainly acoustic guitars playing through those songs. And it's just an absolute revelation because some of those songs are a bit too overproduced and a bit too wacky in that setting. It's a complete revelation. I'd recommend checking that out. It's on Spotify. You don't have to pay full whack to get it. You've clawed back your indie credos with that caveat. Thank you, You you like... My favourite Beatles album (laughs) is their demos of the White Album. That's not not actually an official album, but we'll... It's been put out. I I was bought it for Father's Day, which is... We're going down the nerd hole. Warning. (laughs) I am now very much a dad rock guy. Anyway... (laughs) Sophie, David, thank you for joining me this week. Next week we have Spider-Man Homecoming returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe after Avengers Endgame. Let's see how that pans out. We have Ari Aster's Midsummer, his follow-up to Hereditary. And so we have a folk horror vibe with Witchfinder General, 1968, horror starring Vincent Price. Let us know what you think of those films or any other films we discussed this week at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Once more, Sophie, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market